Where in the world would you expect to find a committed movement striving for a green, equal and non-violent world? The volunteers wish to build a critical mass of non-violent relationships by building a green, equal and non-violent world without war. That was Insan, the mentor of a community of more than 50 peace activists located in Kabul in Afghanistan. This is a story about building peace in a country that has been at war for more than four decades. They've never lived peace to know exactly what they're talking about or what they want, except it's there as a want. It's one of the biggest things that the community could take on, but it's the only one because the fighting won't stop until someone says enough. Today on Changemakers, our story is about Insan and a community of young Afghans, both male and female, who work together across ethnic and sectarian divides to build peace in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, calling for peace can get you killed. So how do you start to build peace in a place that has suffered endless war? How do you mend decades of distrust and violence that has torn a country apart? How do you restore hope in the hopeless? Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. The interviews in today's episode were undertaken in 2016 and 2017 in Afghanistan by our reporter, Mark Isaacs, who also wrote this episode. In reporting this story, we have changed the names and identifying features of the community and its members to protect their identities and respect their anonymity. The identity of our main character, Insan, is kept ambiguous at times. In order to anonymise him, we've employed a voice actor to read his exact words and have omitted certain identifying details of his life. We will meet him soon. But first, we need to zoom out to better understand Afghanistan. Afghanistan has been in constant war since 1979, when the Soviet Union invaded and occupied the nation. Musa Mohammadi is the former executive director of the Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission. The social fabric was destroyed, the culture was destroyed, the tradition, the infrastructure, anything, the economies, and our social respect, all those things that we have, it's gone now. Nowadays, few Afghans remember what it is like to live without war. Abdul's family were Pashtuns from Paktia province, who fled the Soviet's brutality and became refugees in Pakistan. The Soviets made the women watch as they tied their husbands to the tanks and dragged them on the ground until they were killed. It was just a matter of fate or chance or bad luck where the bombs were dropped and who would be killed. The men lost all hope in life. They took up weapons in the name of Jihad, the Holy War. A national resistance movement formed against the Soviet forces. People divided into groups of fighters called Mujahideen, which frequently is referred to as soldiers of God. Soon, 
every part of the country, every valley, every district, was ruled by a Mujahideen commander, a warlord, and his militia. Herat was one of the cities that's um, a big demonstration that was always saying Black Friday. What did that mean? Was- that was people coming from villages. Everyone started to screaming against the regime in the town. And then the uh, government people, they shoot on people. So many people killed. The government only had the, the military base. It was all the, uh, outside of the town. And they are attacking with the, what's the name of the, um, those uh, bullets that can go how many kilometers? Missiles. Missiles, missiles yeah. yeah. Missiles. They, we, we, our house even hit by missile. By the time the Red Army withdrew from the country in 1989, 1.5 million Afghans were dead. The militias who opposed the Soviet Union turned on one another and engaged in civil war. Out of this turmoil emerged the Taliban, who ruled the country until 2001, enforcing a controversial interpretation of Sharia that was lacking in historical perspective or tradition. They targeted anyone opposed to them, particularly the Hazara ethnicity, and they severely oppressed women. Hoja's family lived in a Hazara-majority area of Afghanistan. When I was seven, going on eight, the security situation became intolerable because the Taliban had come and we felt that we needed a way out of the place because things were getting too uncertain. We would sleep at night with our shoes on in case we needed to escape. One evening, the fighting became so bad, the family fled the village. But the Taliban soldiers chased them and caught them. After they took the men, they told the women, now you can go home. We were so frightened, we didn't protest. Shortly after that, from behind them, we heard the sound of gunfire. They had executed the men. One of the executed men was Hoja's father. This just in, you were looking at obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. Then September 11 happened. One month later, Osama bin Laden, filmed from a cave of an Afghan mountainside, claimed responsibility. What America is tasting now is something insignificant compared to what we have tasted for scores of years. Our nation has been testing this humiliation and this degradation for more than 80 years. Its sons are killed, its blood is shed, its sanctuaries are attacked, and no one hears and no one hits. After 9-11, the Taliban refused to cooperate with the United States and their request to extradite bin Laden. War was imminent. The United States, the world's biggest superpower at the time, wanted revenge. Our enemy is a radical network of terrorists and every government that supports them. We will direct every resource at our command to the disruption 
and to the defeat of the global terror network. In October 2001, United States and British forces invaded Afghanistan in an alliance with a coalition of Afghan forces. Within three months, they had captured Kandahar and severely weakened the Taliban regime. At that time, Insan was 32, working as a local doctor. One day in 2002, in the wake of the US invasion, he had a chance encounter. One day, I was in a clinic and a patient came in. He had been doing some humanitarian work at the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan in the city called Kuwaita. They really needed medical people there. It was a horrendous refugee situation. Insan always wanted to do more to serve humanity. This was his chance. The patient connected Insan with an organisation working with refugees. Insan sold his share in his medical practice and moved to Quetta, Pakistan, where 1.2 million Afghan refugees had gathered. Trash collecting Afghan Pashtun boy had lost his father and mother in Kandahar, in the southern part of Afghanistan, and he fled from the bombings and then became a refugee in Quetta. He was one of my first face-to-face encounters. Insan wanted to help Aman, but what could he do? There was no simple solution for any of the million refugees displaced in Pakistan. That story of his life made me think of the many problems that all the Afghan refugees had to face, and that changed me. I finished medical school, but I didn't think hard enough about root ways of resolving very real problems which afflict large numbers of people. He needed to be more than the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. That has brought me to this point then, in thinking deeply about why Afghans need to live this way and what should we as human beings do along with them. This idea remained with Insan as he worked on the border and then into his next posting in a village in the mountains of central Afghanistan. There are maybe 150 families in that village. The houses are made of mud, and around the houses is wheat and potatoes and poplar trees. I woke up to heaven every morning. In these remote villages, Insan began to find ways to put into practice the insight he had in Quetta. He started to work on preventative health. That first public education campaign was on water because diarrhoea and the lack of clean water is one of the major killers of Afghan children and causes of mortality in Afghanistan. That work and living in the village exposed me to needs other than medical needs. There was a need for safety, a need to be healthy inside, a need to work through feelings of anger and revenge, a need to learn, a need to know how to work with the land. But while he found lots of particular causes, health, Water, then education. Something deeper lay at the centre of all the pain he encountered. Again and again in my work, I would encounter these same root problems. You can't address any family's problem without having to address the problem of war. Some of them would even say we can handle weeks of hunger, but we just cannot have another family member killed. I began to see that it was important for me, in order to love the people here, to be able to address the issue of death, of war, 
of why the world has become like this. What could he possibly do? My world was turning upside down and I thought, okay, maybe let's start off with organizing a peace workshop. A peace workshop. The local university approved Insan's idea and 50 students agreed to meet on a weekly basis over a three-month period. Insan didn't have a plan. He just wanted to begin a discussion. At the end of the three months, Insan brought the community together for a final reflection. The conclusion of the workshop by the majority of the participants was that peace in Afghanistan is not possible. Insan was undeterred. He had a suggestion. It was quite clear to me that one contributing reason to why human beings think they're better than another human being is the ethnic issue. I wanted to explore the possibility of undergraduates from different ethnic groups living together for one semester. People couldn't believe in peace because they couldn't see people overcoming distrust and hatred for different ethnic groups. So, Insan theorised that if they could create a microcosm of a peaceful, multi-ethnic community in their town, they could act as an example to the rest of Afghanistan. His school could prefigure what Afghanistan could be. One of the biggest sources of conflict in Afghanistan was between ethnic groups and Muslim sects. At that time, the hostilities and divisions caused by war meant the Tajiks and the Hazaras in the region were not on friendly terms. Hafizullah grew up in this hostile environment. It was so bad that, the, that when Hazaras and Tajiks met, without even speaking to each other, based solely on their facial expressions, they would start fighting. I subconsciously felt that Tajiks were my enemies. This was going to be hard. When I heard about a possibility of the youth not only working together but living together, I thought, well, that's not going to be possible. Muslim Yor had good reason to be sceptical. His brother, who was a soldier in the Afghan National Army, was killed by the Taliban. The bullets had gone through his eyes. They also went through his chest and back. He was young, 23 or 24 years of age survived by a newborn daughter. This is life in Afghanistan. Despite all this, at the end of the three-month workshop, Insan got his greatest boost yet. He was approached by 16 male students from different ethnic groups who wanted to participate. And so began Insan's experiment in peace. experiment immediately drew suspicion. Outsiders couldn't understand why young people from different ethnic groups and Muslim sects were mixing. I thought it was a potentially good controversy. Insan had hoped that the multi-ethnic community could have helped people to question their own ethnic prejudices. However, one day Insan received an anonymous letter that said, leave the mountains or we will hurt you. 
I imagined being shot in the back or being taken. It was so real because then I thought, am I prepared to have my life end there? Not even for the cause of peace or social work, but just for I don't know what. You know, it was probably money. At the urging of his employer and friends, Insan agreed to leave the area temporarily and return to his parents' home. While he was away, his conviction only grew. I was more and more convinced of the fact that this was something I wanted to do. This needed to be a struggle. This needed to be my own personal journey, and I needed to remain committed to it, perhaps foolhardy that it could result in me being hurt or killed. Despite the fears and the dangers, Insan returned. The students from the first live-in trial were determined to carry on with their piecework. Insan wanted to start a group that conversed with fellow Afghans and discussed basic principles of peace, morality and law. He wanted to place the universal values of peace in the public consciousness. When I heard that the youth were working for peace, I liked the idea. That made me want to try. I had heard radio programs talking about how it was important to bring peace to this country and I was keen to try it out. The students in Insan invited young people to their group and they started to perform actions in the local area to promote peace. They organised a peace trek through the local mountains and they arranged a clean and green campaign to clean up the local township. This campaign paved the way for their next big idea, the building of a peace park. They picked a plot of arid land covered in pebbles, stones and boulders, located on the fringes of town, and asked the local government for permission to build a peace park. No one in the local area thought it was possible. One local politician remarked to Insan, You want to turn that into a green space? You need to be a bit more realistic in the things that you do in life. They weren't deterred. They recruited local businesses and government departments, and by October 2009, the once arid plot of rock was looking like a fertile oasis. A local politician commended their efforts. Unfortunately, through years of war and conflict, we have lost some values. We have lost self-sufficiency and self-belief. Everyone waits for a foreign NGO to place a stone or brick before doing anything. Building this peace park is an example that we can build our own country and not be dependent on others. The group was beginning to believe in their work and themselves. They hoped that their example would motivate other Afghans to take responsibility for the future of their country and their communities. On a sign in the park, they wrote a note. Even a little of our love is stronger than all the wars. After a number of successful community-building projects, Insan suggested it was time to push themselves outside their comfort zones. Our next thought was to reach out to Pashtuns in Kandahar province, the heartland of the Taliban. This was hugely controversial. In their region, a Pashtun person was synonymous with the Taliban, and many of the local people, including members of the group, had suffered at the hands of the Taliban forces. 
I was afraid of Pashtun people because I had heard that Pashtuns were wild. My relatives hated the Pashtuns. They would respond to news of Pashtuns fighting by saying, if we catch them, we will kill them. And I thought coalition building in Australia was hard. Insan believed negotiating peace in Afghanistan would be an exercise in trust and compromise. In order to end the conflict, people would have to shake hands with their enemies or those they believed to be their enemies. You can only reconcile with the Taliban if you see the Taliban as fellow human beings who have had legitimate grievances, who have basic human needs which need to be met, who need to be loved, and perhaps then they will not want to fight with you. They decided to make leather cell phone pouches for young people in Kandahar. With a pen, we wrote on one face of the leather the word sul, which means peace in dairy. When the youth in Kandahar received their cell phone pouches, they called Insan. They said, we couldn't believe it. This is impossible. You have done an impossible thing. You are Hazaras. It blew our mind that you, not even knowing us, would demonstrate such love for us. Such a simple gesture had a huge impact. Little by little, the volunteers were growing in confidence that they could bring Afghans together in the name of peace. These achievements didn't stop scepticism from some quarters. They insulted me. They accused me of telling lies. You can't be volunteering. Tell us how many dollars you are getting from this. Horse was ridiculed by his relatives. They would say, you're too young, you're too small. These kinds of activities are mad. You're so small, whereas the politicians, they are so big and powerful. If they can't bring peace, what are you doing? They drew upon historic social change leaders for inspiration. Gandhi has a quote. First, they ignore you. Then, they ridicule you. Then, they oppose you. Then, you win. They also drew lessons from their own work. When I joined the group, I realised that the youth who were there were working with good, positive energy. Then I realised that these presumptions and things that people were saying about the other ethnic groups was not true. When we worked together, I saw that all of us were one. We are actually quite the same. I learned from the group that it is not important which ethnic group you come from, or which religious sect you come from, or maybe it's not even important which religion you come from. Humanity is what is important. Truth is important. It's important to be able to work together. It's important to be able to help those who are poor and vulnerable. Gradually, I made a decision that I ought to be working with such a group of young people. Insan and the young men remained committed to their philosophies despite the public criticism. I was aware of the fact that the people who issued the threats were probably still angry, that they weren't willing to meet me. I was wary and I was still being protected. I knew the threats could resurface at any time. However, the local fears and suspicions associated with their work eventually caught up with them. The person broke into my room, dragged a gas cylinder into my room and released the gas. Then, with the gas filling the whole room, the person lit matches. 
people from the village saw the house on fire and raised the alarm. They had been in the fields and they rushed into my room. They were very frightened, but they threw soil and water on the flames. I was on my way home at the time. I arrived at the house and my items that had been burned were laid out on the ground and the villagers were standing around looking at the whole scene. In my heart, I thought, oh. In the days after the fire, strange accusations began to surface in the village that Insan had set his own room on fire. Insan sought advice from his colleagues. Leave tomorrow. They are going to get you. But I am innocent, I said. That doesn't matter. This is Afghanistan, he said. There are individuals and groups who are accustomed to the use of force and they won't stop. They know what it takes to keep power. Insan realised he would have to leave the village and his friends. And he grieved this loss. Although he decided to flee the mountains, he wasn't ready to give up the struggle for peace. After spending more than six years in the mountains, he decided he would relocate to Kabul, where he could spread the influence and the reach of his work. When Insan left for Kabul, he did not ask and he did not expect anyone to join him. However, three of the young men decided that they would come with him. The four of them agreed to live together in an apartment. The city had changed a lot since the last time Insan had been there in 2004. Back then, Kabul was a city flattened by war, but at least there was a hope that the US would build a better future. In 2003, the US turned their attention to Iraq and Saddam Hussein. They failed to stop a Taliban resurgence and to consolidate peace in Afghanistan. Reconstruction of the country was not a priority, and the Afghan people lost faith in the international forces and their promises of peace and democracy. By 2011, the Taliban had regrouped and resumed hostilities. Stories of attacks, kidnappings and killings in Kabul were on the rise. The city had become overcrowded as refugees returned to Afghanistan and rural communities fled the fighting. During their first winter in Kabul, Insan raised the possibility of inviting a Pashtun student to join the House of Hazaras and Tajiks. This was the first step to resuming the multi-ethnic community first started in the mountains. Payman was the first Pashtun person to join Insan's experiment in Kabul. I noticed that the youth there spoke slightly different languages. Their accents were all different, but there was friendship. I understood from then that friendship enables us to see everyone as human beings. Based on that, I could see that we could sit down with one another, learn from one another, even live together. So I began to stay with the group. Payman was particularly critical of how drones had killed so many civilians in his own home province. The people began to see these computer-controlled planes would come every evening, close to evening, and they would hover in the sky around the area until the next morning. My brother-in-law and his four friends had gone one evening to water their fields. Close to midnight, the people in the village heard the sounds of bomb blasts. The next day, they found the bodies of these five persons and the bodies were all burned and charred. 
Payman led the community in what became an annual kite-flying demonstration called Fly Kites, Not Drones. Drones have a psychological effect on everyone in the area, in the village, especially young people and children. When my brother-in-law was killed, he was survived by his wife and children. If anyone needs a reminder, these drone strikes were authorised by President Obama and conducted by military personnel sitting at computers thousands of kilometres away, safely inside the United States. And my nephew says his father was killed by a computer. As the Kabul Peace House grew, it grew in diversity. Many different ethnic groups started living together. But peace isn't some magic moment. It's a process. It is generated with empathy and openness over time. People have to work hard for peace, as did the house. The first Pashtun I met was Paiman. Before that, my mental picture was Pashtuns are wild. They are killers. When I saw Paiman, I thought he looks a little like us. But I wasn't comfortable in the room with Paiman. Paiman didn't speak good Dari. He spoke Pashto. I couldn't understand Paiman's Dari, so I gave up trying to speak to him. It took about three months before I felt comfortable communicating with the Pashtuns. The house was not an island. It was shaped by prejudice that lay outside the house. I was fearful that the other ethnic groups in the community could be informers or spies. That feeling lasted for about a year. The Pashtun members would talk about how their people were suffering at the hands of the Taliban and that helped me to see that they are also not supportive of extremist views and practices. Now we are like brothers. Personal connection overcame wartime rivalries. People decided to work together on community building projects that would address inequality and injustice. Gandhi himself said that his movement and advocacy work was only approximately 10% of his entire work for non-violence and essentially the majority of his work was what he termed constructive work. So non-violence is predominantly constructive. Ever since Quetta, Insan held a place in his heart for street kids. He felt that he needed to do something for what he didn't do for Amman and all the children on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. One of the measures of society or of the human race is how we treat our children. Not just our own children, but all children. Surely we can understand that, right? They deserve more than what they are getting from humanity. We don't have to spend money dropping bombs. The community started a school for street kids. They initially enrolled five Hazara and Pashtun children from a displaced people's camp as part of a three-month pilot program teaching literacy. Years later, in present-day Kabul, the school had enrolled more than 100 boys and girls in classes of diary, English, mathematics, non-violence and tailoring. These young children were all street workers before they joined the community school. To encourage families to enrol their children in government schools, we supplement the lost income of the studying child by providing monthly food gifts of rice and oil. Arash is one of the street kids who joined the school. I have lived a life of poverty. It was the 10th day of the religious festival called Muharram, and my father was working as a wooden cart street vendor. He was pushing his cart near a mosque and the attack happened. My family tried to call my father, but he never picked up his phone. 
When I lost my father, I knew that I had to work every day in the streets. I was nine years old at the time. While Arash was working on the street, he was approached by a Muslim Muir and invited to attend the school. From the time I started lessons, I wasn't very good in my writing or reading. Since then, with every year I have been improving. From the second year, I became familiar with the concept of non-violence. Non-violence is about not hurting other people, about preventing fights, about eliminating ethnic discrimination and also taking care of the environment. These classes were not just teaching students basic literacy. They were also providing lessons in how to be good people. One big thing that I've been able to learn and apply is that change starts with ourselves, within us. I began to try in my own life not to discriminate against other people and to control myself when I get angry. Before Hafizullah joined the community in Kabul, he had been an illiterate young street kid. His transformation in the community saw him become one of Arash's teachers at the school. There were 45 people in my class, and even though I couldn't read or write and couldn't answer any of the questions, I would always be ranked 32nd. The teachers who couldn't accept my illiteracy would use punishment, like using a wooden stick to hit me on the hand twisting my ears, hitting my head. There were various forms of punishment. Hafizullah only began to learn to read and write in the classes organised by the community in Kabul. He now reads books about Gandhi and uses his own negative experiences of school to better teach the street kids. When the street kids become naughty or make noise, I know that using punishment is not going to work. So I try different methods. I will shift them around the class rather than scold them or punish them. When I see how we are helping these students to learn to read, I get very happy. This constructive work seeks to change how people live in society while building new relationships. They started with the school, but it went broader. They began a food cooperative, a peace park in Kabul, and they hired a seamstress to sew duvets, which they would then donate to war widows and the poor. Community building projects such as these attracted other young people, but many weren't able to live in the house. Such a living arrangement was unusual for conservative Afghan culture, which expects people to live within family networks. This was especially true for women, such as Hoja, who had begun to join the community's activities. At first, I wouldn't visit all that often. The house and the community were all male, but there were female volunteers coming for some activities and causes. The first time I visited the house, I was with my mother. I noticed how the space was not big and the rooms were not big and there were more people than the space could accommodate. Hoja had moved to Kabul to study at university. She was the first woman in her village to graduate, defying the expectation common in rural Afghanistan that she would become a wife and a mother in her teens. I felt unhappy with the societal norm, which believed that women are weak human beings, that they shouldn't be involved in what men do or what people do in public places, and that our place was only to be in the home. In the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, this is both a religious and a political issue. In 2012, the Religious Council of Afghanistan announced that women are inferior to men. 
President Karzai's office approved it. Part of my persistence in going to school was really to defy society's limitations. Sadly, the university education she received didn't meet her expectations. For Hoja, the community played the role in her life which she thought the university would. The community taught me to work with society and in groups, interacting with others. We mentioned earlier that Hoja's father had been murdered by the Taliban. People, like myself, are seeking a way out of this fatigue, a way out of this endless fog of war. Taking revenge will only lead to more grievances and more revenge and will ultimately end up hurting myself. With that understanding, I can deal with those emotions. Forgiveness is one way in which I and Afghans can find our way out of the endless war. Hoja and two other women pioneered the first female-only live-in community. They wanted to recruit more participants, but it was difficult to find women who were allowed to live away from their family with strangers. If we had been able to establish a female community which was similar to the male community, there would have been, on a physical level, a clearer representation of our equality and our partnership to address ethnic divisions. We would have strengthened one another. The female community stayed together for one and a half years. Their bravery paved the way for other women to join the group. Tara had heard about the group through a friend and became intrigued. It was the first time I had gone out of the house without being accompanied by a member of my family or my parents other than going to school. Travelling across town alone as a woman is not considered safe in Kabul. Tara's father worked in the military and was particularly protective of her movements. I catch a bus from my home to the centre. On the rare occasions when the bus is not full, the journey is okay. But when the bus is full, as it often is, then it is very cramped. Women frequently complain about the behaviour of men. I always try to place myself in a safe position. You have to be alert and smart to find those spaces. Her initial visits to the community also challenged traditional Afghan cultural expectations of how men and women are supposed to interact. There is this culture of Muharram, which is that the girl shouldn't be speaking to a stranger if there is no family member around. I felt shy looking at or wanting to speak to a stranger in the centre. Even today, I'm not completely comfortable with making eye contact. So what encouraged her to keep returning to this community at great risk to herself? It's very difficult for a person to believe that this is the purpose of the group if a person hears it from afar. But when a person comes to the group and sees it for his or herself, like I did, then they would observe the volunteers working in different teams to build and create their world in a practical way. It was the group's implementation of nonviolent philosophies and practices that was most memorable to Tara. Nonviolence is not a small concept. It is not going to be a quick process of believing it and practicing it and making it popular in society. But I believe that every huge concept and practice starts small. I'm confident with time, those small practices will become bigger and bigger until it will reach all of Afghanistan. Nowadays, the community has an almost even number of male and female volunteers and they run a bicycle riding school for women as well as other female-oriented activities. But the risks remain. The fear of insecurity, of things just ending, is present for males and females. But the fear for girls who are harassed, 
or see violence, that fear is real and it is there. But remember, we are in Afghanistan. Non-violence isn't just a radical way of being, but it directly confronts the war and violence that is all around. We would wake up in the mornings and our alarm clocks were bomb blasts. Instinctively, my eyes went to each corner of the room where the others were sleeping, just to make sure that the youth were okay, that they were alive. And that's a terrible way to start a day. Insem recalls one particular incident where he and Muslim Muir were studying quietly in a room in the house. The bomb blast was so loud that he literally flew across the room. The response from the Afghan government was the response the world has now to all forms of terrorist acts. We just kill. Kill, kill, just go and kill all of them. They came in their helicopters, they came in their planes, they were flying overhead, the windows were vibrating, the sounds were going boom, 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 and we couldn't sleep. What Insan had discovered is that the difference between peace and violence isn't just bombs. It's in the actions of people every day. This is how we, as a world, respond to fear. We fear the Taliban and all the terrorists. We ignore the terrorism which is inside us. And then we inflict more terror. We just make everybody afraid. These bombings, this chronic war, took its toll upon all Afghans. Each and every person in community had their own way of manifesting their psychological challenges. Muslim Yar would bang his head against the wall until he had to be restrained. Hafizullah, when he got angry on a few occasions, he would become so powerful in his rage that it would take two or three family members to hold him down. Azhar punched holes in the walls. At times, little triggers sparked major conflicts in the house. One evening, two young members of the community were arguing with one another and and it escalated. In the end, one of them picked up a knife and the other picked up the lid of a pressure cooker. We had to restrain them. Insan also felt the pressure of community life. He suffered bouts of uncontrollable rage, which lasted for hours. He referred to this as his volcano. How ugly had I become? From all the accumulated stresses, from war, from bomb blasts, from attacks, from grieving, there were many things outside of myself that I couldn't control. The mental health issues in the house were substantial. A psychiatrist from the United States observed it firsthand during a visit and said it was a 14-person psychiatric ward. These psychological issues made community life unpredictable, but they also invited the community to take on a much deeper solution. Even stronger relationships were needed. Insan introduced peace circles as a way to foster understanding. Each member of the community would express their feelings about what was going on, about their concerns and their fears. It helped everyone see how we were all struggling, how we had shared worries and how everyone had feelings for one another. That really helped to strengthen our friendship. Relationships can change everything. It's the atomic power we haven't tapped yet. Scientists discovered that when atoms fuse together, even though we can't see this process, they release a power which is huge. The power of relationships can be atomic. 
even though we can't necessarily see the effects of their fusion. Over the years, the members of the community have begun gradually to open our hearts and opening our lives to one another and allowing one another to learn how to consider one another as equal, that no one is better than the other person. Within three years, I have started to see the community members learn to relate with each other that way. I have seen how these people's narrow, conservative, rural, village view of life changed into a worldview. Within three years, the youth have learned the relational model. Now they can sit down with an international visitor or a person from another ethnic group or religious group and have a meal. It's mind-blowing. If that could happen with everyone else in the world, we could take concrete steps towards global peace. These relationships were incredibly powerful. But even with strong relationships, tensions in the house were sometimes hard to manage. Most of the challenges in the community were over cooking and cleaning. Perhaps it wasn't surprising that in an all-male house, in a country where women are expected to perform household chores, disputes occurred over household duties. Up to that point in my life, I had never done any housework. So I thought, what? I have to do housework? I have to be on the cleaning roster? Some of the community members resented having to do household chores. Some people didn't cook on the day they were supposed to cook, or if they cooked, they didn't clean up after they cooked. Some members refused to clean and others had to clean for them. The rules of the community, which had been developed over many community meetings, stipulated how a member could join the live-in community. Members were required to cook and clean, and a contract stated that under certain conditions, the community could ask a member to leave. But like in all share households, it was a lot more complicated than that. It was the small stuff that caused the problems. But instead of just passive-aggressive post-it notes on the fridge, like in the share households I know, this conflict took on a much broader meaning. Remember, these were people who had been taught to hate each other. It led to accusations of discrimination and favouritism. We don't have the habit of talking about the problems. We are fearful if we say it, someone will get angry at us. Rivalries between individuals, masked as ethnic or sectarian rivalries, threatened the harmony of the community. Accusations were going to and fro across ethnic groups. Accusations were thrown from perceptions of injustice within the community, unfair treatment. Even our regular program of trying to just listen to one another more deeply was not enough. There was just too much pain. Domestic arguments, traumas and the outside tensions raised by the existence of the Peace House strained the internal relationships. Some members of the House stopped participating in community activities and household responsibilities. The live-in community reached breaking point. Dissenters who were no longer engaging with the group philosophies were asked to leave. In return, Insan was threatened with retaliation. I felt so discouraged by their various ways of treating us badly, like insulting us, spreading rumours about us, which were rumours that endangered our lives. There were times when I didn't think I could carry on with the activities. That was very disappointing, very difficult. 
The only thing we could do as a community was to try to encourage one another. There were calls from some of the group to retaliate the Afghan way, which meant using violence. The group feared their experiment was going to fail. Whatever they did, however they treated us, we tried our best to keep to our principles of not harming them, not responding violently. There were threats and there are still consequences from that period of time which I continue to face. Did I want to give up? Yes. There were times when I thought, maybe it would be wise for me to leave. Leaders like Muslim Muir took guidance from the non-violent tradition. Gandhi says a successful person falls but gets up again. The successful person does not give up. Historically, the examples of slavery, of suffrage, of civil rights, all those things are bound to involve a struggle, problems, opposition. Communities are like a wave. They never go away. The community evolves. The strength of the community stays. The effects, including negative effects, are part of the growth process of pruning, of reforming, individually and as a group. Each and every attempt to understand this is progress despite all our flaws, because we learn from our mistakes. The community decided to transition away from the chaotic and self-destructive live-in community to a more structured and inclusive program based at a community centre. The opening of the community centre was pivotal. The centre enabled the community to refocus its activities in the centre rather than get embroiled in the community. They don't live together, but there they have the space to work together, interact, become friends, practice, take action in teams. People who weren't living in community began to be involved in the activities every week. They have become a family. Insan also believed it was a more replicable model for the rest of the country and an easier way for applying the principle of constructivism. Nowadays, the community members work in teams which run different community building projects. These teams operate under three core pillars. One, building green alternatives. Two, building equal alternatives. Three, building alternatives for non-violence and a world without war and weapons. Teams are run by coordinators, making decisions by consensus. There is no leader. The horizontal power structure is necessary to combat concerns of preferential treatment. It has now been more than a decade since Insan and his volunteers started their experiments in peace and the country is as bad as ever. The Afghan government is in control of just over half of the nation, with a third of the country in conflict. A branch of the Islamic State has established itself in certain provinces. The international community has withdrawn significantly from the country, and Afghanistan's economy and political structure is fragile. The Afghan people have lost confidence in their government and are losing faith that peace and stability can be restored to their country. So what hope is there for peace? Peace will depend on whether the foreign powers that be will stop interfering, will stop selling weapons, using drones and planes to continue the war. Peace is possible, 
But right now the people are not self-reliant. The people don't have financial autonomy. So the powers then have a hook that they can use in providing financial aid and therefore fulfilling their own foreign agendas. After decades of international and domestic diplomatic failure, Insan and the group don't trust the political negotiations between the United States, the Taliban and other nations. We've been very effective in Afghanistan and if we wanted to do uh, a certain method of war, we would win that very quickly. But many, many, really tens of millions of people would be killed. Regardless of any potential political agreements between international forces and the Taliban, peace will only endure if it lives in the community's grassroots. It is only a bottom-up approach to peacebuilding that can overcome the deep-seated antagonisms between different ethnic groups. It won't come within our generation, but we can work so there is a possibility of peace coming in the next generation. What we are doing now is laying foundations. We can encourage each member to bring change within themselves because personal change becomes a solid foundational change. Afghans have great resilience and hope. Despite 40 years of war, they are still very resilient. They pass on hope to one another. They cling on to hope, even when death is on their doorstep. The future of Afghanistan looks precarious at best. But one thing is certain. If peace is going to occur in Afghanistan, it must come from within, from the Afghan people. I want to encourage anyone who would embark on such a process of relationships, raw, naked human relationships. Stick to it. Don't give up. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. This is Series 4, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. If you want to learn more about the peace community, pick up a copy of Mark Isaac's wonderful book, The Kabul Peace House, available at all good bookstores and online at www.markj. I-S-A-A-C-S dot C-O-M. That's www.markjisaacs.com. You can also donate to the community by visiting www.erc.org.au backslash Afghan underscore project. You can also post letters to the community via... Letters for Peace, Edmund Rice Centre, 15 Henley Road, Homebush West, NSW, Australia, 2140. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating. The series is written by Mark Isaacs, Kate Wilde, Charles Firth and Amanda Tattersall. Our audio producer is Jules Wolverer. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast 
and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts, our email list and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our trainings. We have designed some free Changemaker trainings just for these times. It's called the Changemakers Organising School. They are weekly, free and terribly fun, designed to help people think and make change. You can find out more on our website under the training tab.